everybody. Here we are at Marad Economics today, and it is Saren Karakasu. And today I am with Professor David Just. As always, hello. <laughs> it, uh, our MPS students, Yudong and Elaine. Hello. Hello. And our special guest star, Professor Scott Yunker. And Professor is in Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management, and he's primarily focusing on the areas of corporate and behavioral finance, as well as investments. And today we have a topic which may be interesting for the investors as well. So we'll talk about uh, corporations and how human matter uh, can be important for corporate policies. And as we know, today we are living in a world where corporations can be more powerful than the countries. And even in some cases, they are too big to fail, actually. So, But who are responsible for decision making uh, for them, right? And their CEOs. Let's start with, with CEO behaviors first. And Professor, can you please tell us about on corporate policies? Yeah, sure. Th thanks a lot for having me here uh, today. Yeah, so a lot of my research focuses on sort of how do the backgrounds of these uh, important uh, managers impact the, the corporate decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And so traditional economics sort of looked a lot at sort of what um, sort of firm-level characteristics or industry-level characteristics, and, and a lot of my Uh, research focuses on sort of the human element and how that impacts corporate decisions. So uh, one line of research I, I focused on was CEO behavior. And so I guess mm -hmm. that's what we'll be talking about today. And really the first paper that I wrote in this line of research uh, was on how CEO uh, CEOs' preferences toward leverage mm -hmm. then impact the, the corporate leverage decision. This sort of idea goes back way back to sort of the 1960s to a, to a, the CEO of American Home Products. He was also the founder of the company and he, he has this famous statement, I just don't like leverage. And then subsequently for the next uh, 20 odd years that he managed the firm, he never carried any debt on the books. Now the interesting thing is if, if you know uh, anything about sort of corporate leverage, if you just increase leverage a little bit, Uh, there's there's enormous tax benefits, and so you could actually increase firm value by holding a little bit of leverage without probably being too, too, risky. too risky. So when he left, the the new CEO came in, and the first thing that that CEO did was <laughs> was uh, take out some debt. So so we were sort of interested in in how does the how does the CEO's preferences toward leverage impact the corporate capital structure because. A lot of the heterogeneity or the differences in capital structure across firms um, can be is, is unex, goes unexplained. Okay, so this was one <laughs> potential potential source. And, and so, just that example you gave, I mean, I would think shareholders at some point would start putting enough pressure on a CEO, even mm. even if they were the founder, yeah. <laughs> right? Take on a little bit of leverage, but it, uh, it didn't happen here. Or did he own too much of it to? Yeah, in this case, I, I, I'm not exactly sure why uh, the governance mechanisms failed, but but yes, uh, you would think that shareholders would put pressure on. Um, you know, in the 1960s, we didn't have as much institutional ownership of mm -hmm. firms as we do today. Now institutions own a lot more of firms. They're often active in, in sort of pushing mm -hmm. firms towards sort of optimal pol policy. So this kind of thing may not happen as much today, but we still actually, there's, in the in the literature, there's... Um, what's known as the zero leverage firm puzzle. So there are a, a substantial number of firms that have absolutely no yeah. no leverage still out there today, and that is uh, sort of a puzzle to a, to economists. So. <laughs> so it is sort of interesting to me because you know, as as an economist, I, I took all these classes and do all this research where firm decisions are simply 
maximizing profit. And, we, and even the idea that it is a firm decision, right? It's just like <clears throat> this, this entity called a firm made a decision. It doesn't really mesh, I guess, with, uh, with reality. How, how, do, how does a you know, CEO influence the decisions of a, a firm? Yeah, well, so, I mean, the, the CEO is ultimately the, the decision maker for the firm. And even if, if you're thinking about sort of financial policies, you have a mm-hmm. chief financial officer, right? But usually the big decisions have to go through the filter of the CEO, have to get the okay. And so, you know, the CEO sort of sets the tone and, and is the filter through which all decisions are made. And, you know, so this is, this is the influence. Then how much does the, you know, how much of the quirks of that particular CEO end up shining through in, in the firms they're leading? Well, so that's the that's sort of the the basis for the research that I that I do, and so, so trying to trying to measure that is difficult because you have to know <laughs> yeah. what are the what are the CEO's beliefs or what are their preferences, mm-hmm. and you know, unlike sort of with uh, maybe uh, retail investors or something like mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. where you could send out a survey and ask them. CEOs aren't likely to respond, although (laughs) (laughs) they're a little busy. They're a little busy. Although, although John Graham at Duke University has a uh, has a CFO survey that that they put out, and they Um, and it's it's very interesting. So uh, they've made some headway, but but for the most part, right, uh, we have to sort of um, look at choices that they've made, Mm -hmm. and then infer the preferences from those. And so, what we do in this sort of um, trying to uh, trying to determine what the um, CEO's leverage preference is, what the mm-hmm. impact of that is on capital structure, we look to a different market. And so what we do is we say, well, mm-hmm. there is this theory called behavioral consistency. And mm-hmm. it says that given the similar situations, people tend to make the same decisions in those situations. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. Another situation where the CEO makes a leverage decision is in his personal life Okay, yeah. uh-huh. when, when buying a home. And so what we do is we uh, look up, uh, using public records, we determine the amount of leverage the CEO took out on his house when he purchased his home, okay? Um, And and we (laughs) use public records to to figure out the assessed value of the house or the purchase price of the house. And we can calculate a loan-to-value ratio just like you have a leverage ratio Um. for the firm. And is it their preference before they started, like, uh, being CEO or during this um yeah, so that's a good question, right? So a lot, you know, one one issue is that, you know, sort of the wealth um, could confound of the CEO. So being CEO at the time that he's making that leverage decision, well, maybe he's going to hedge his leverage against the leverage of the firm, or maybe, uh, you know, and, and I don't yeah. know necessarily believe yeah. all of these that these are would would, would play out, but um, that is an issue if it's a contemporaneous leverage. Okay. We can look at the leverage decision they made 20 years ago, prior to becoming CEO, okay. and and predict uh, the corporate leverage. So we can use these sort that of very stale decisions that were made, and and use that in order to predict. And so huh. we think that it's sort of this, you know, and a lot goes into the leverage decision, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's, you know, what's your wealth relative to the size of the house and all of this kind of stuff. We can extract those factors that mm-hmm. predict. Um, how much leverage you take out on the house, and basically take out those factors and use what's left over, and that predicts. We call that sort of, you could think of that as sort of their debt tolerance, right? Or their, mm-hmm. you know, how That's much they cool. like debt. And we can mm-hmm. use that 
to predict the corporate leverage. Have people been able to use similar ideas to, to get at other characteristics of the CEO? Yeah, so, so since this paper, a number of people have uh, started looking at, it's like manipulating earnings, like earning, tax, shelter you know, and tax and, shelters, yeah. earnings manipulations. Yeah. yeah, people have shown that sort of CEOs, when they behave badly, are more like, in their personal life, they're more likely to engage in misconduct hmm. um, at the professional level, these kinds of things. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a very uh, contemporary study that uses, mm-hmm. uh, what is this, escort service website? Oh uh, my gosh, uh, Ashley Madison. Oh gosh, all right, yeah. and and finds <laughs> CEOs who have been found to be on Ashley Madison, and then they find out that they are more likely to manipulate earnings and do all these other things. That okay, is- so it's so if you lie in one context, you're that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So so it's gone to the extreme. Uh, <laughs> you know, people have looked at all kinds of. Uh, create a lot of a lot of different things since I mean, people have looked at uh, CEO piloting behavior. So if if you're a mm-hmm. if you're a, I guess people people who are pilots tend to be sensation seeking, uh-huh. and so CEOs they look to see whether CEOs who fly airplanes are more take greater risk at the oh. corporate level as well. And, and there's mm-hmm. some evidence along those lines as well. So. So there's a whole host of these these kinds of papers now. That is pretty so. interesting. Do you cool. think the schooling choices and the school law is also a good predictive uh, factor? The school, like where they went to school? Or their uh, majors, maybe? Yeah. Oh, their their majors? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so there has been CEOs from more prestigious schools uh, tend to have slightly better performance at times. Uh-huh. It's pretty weak. Uh, you know, that, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, it's, it's, uh, you know, and how do you measure the, uh, how good a school is? I guess you can look at sort of average SAT scores and this kind of thing, but it's. How does this inform, you know, if, if you're on the, the, you know, searching for a new CEO. Right. Does this literature actually inform them in any way or, or have, or is there some history of a firm actually mm-hmm. selecting a CEO based on these characteristics? Yeah. So, well, so this is the whole issue with this literature is, are these, C, you know, is it that the CEOs are influencing the capital structure or are boards choosing CEOs who have certain characteristics that they, that mm-hmm. they would oh, like yeah, uh, sure. to influence capital structure in the, in the way that they want it to go? Do they, are they just grabbing the person who wants... To push the capital structure toward, so there's this sort of whole selection argument. Is it selection or is it sort of the idiosyncratic styles of these managers that are impacting these decisions? So so the board wants more leverage and so they go find some guy who's just about to go bankrupt on his house. (laughs) That's right, that's right, that's right. That's right. Yeah, so conceivably maybe you could look and see how this person... Finances their home to you know. I mean, these are this is all public records. You know, search committees are these search firms are very detailed in their analysis of CEOs, and sometimes they're doing you know all kinds of you know personality uh, surveys and all kinds of things. But so maybe they do do this. Probably more likely, this proxies for some other qualities among in the CEO that search firms might be able to pick up. And then in your another paper that you, you read, you also mentioned the uh, selecting criteria where, you know, uh, there's a high percentage of CEO, they come from local. Uh, so do you think a, a lot of farms, firms more likely to hire local CEOs and rather than like on local ones? Because I think that's also a criteria that maybe searching firms. Yeah, so there, so in another sort of bit of my research, I look at the CEO labor market. So mm-hmm. the 
the uh, sort of longstanding view of the CEO labor market is it's this national market. Uh, you know, these the, these uh, CEOs are wealthy. Firms have a lot of resources. They should be able to move, you know, any person from X to Y, no problem. This should be this frictionless market. Mm-hmm. So there shouldn't be sort of any geographic segmentation in this market. In reality, there is. And so I have a paper that shows this, that, that basically about 30% of CEOs um, grew up in this state where the firm is headquarters, mm-hmm. quartered. If we were to sort of, uh, if, if CEO origin were random, mm-hmm. that number would be about 5%. Okay. So, so how does that happen? So of the CEOs that I know, I, I and and I've I've sort of tracked around. I, I I actually do know a few who end up being CEOs in the state where they grew up. But a lot of them actually moved there after having been a CEO elsewhere, hmm. right? As, as as a preference, right? They they sort of well, I'd really like to move back to where I'm I'm from. Let me find an opportunity over there, and they've they've got this now incredible record that they can draw on to say, you need to hire me. You're exactly right. This is actually what seems to be the driving force. I mean, there's a lot of reasons you could think that this would happen, mm-hmm. right? There are sort of uh, demand side and supply side factors. Demand mm-hmm. side, right, search costs. Maybe mm-hmm. you only search locally, but that's probably not not yeah. the case, right? On the, on the supply, supply side, you know, people might have a preference for living uh, near their childhood home. Why? You might have family and friends. You might have good contacts there, right? Uh, you might have, um, just have a real affinity for this this place. And and that seems to be what drives uh, most of this. Uh, so there are a number of findings that are sort of consistent with this. Mm-hmm. Number one, these guys are less likely to leave voluntarily. So unforced turnover okay. is much lower for local CEOs. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of consistent with wanting to be there. The other thing is they get paid less. Now, this is consistent with there being a compensating differential. I'm willing to yeah. go there. Uh, be I'm willing uh, to sort of live where I want to be geographically uh-huh. in return for a lower pay. So this is, uh, economics calls this a compensating differential. Mm-hmm. And uh, performance uh, performance doesn't seem to be any, any <laughs> different uh, okay. for, for locals or non-locals. But it's, mm-hmm. yeah, so it seems to be a lot of things point to this geographic preference. Uh, people, when I used to present this paper. So so the way that we I, I identify where people are, these CEOs are from, is I grab the first five digits of their social security number. Okay, I, so that's uh, a geographic locator. The first three digits are issued by state. Uh-huh. The s- second two are the sequence of the issuance. So once you get those first five numbers that are non-random, uh-huh. you have time and place. Uh, and so good. when is the time and place? Well, CEOs are 55 years old. When they become no. CEOs, <laughs> and so in my in my sample, no. so you got a little ways to go before. That's right. That's right. In my sample, that means they got their their social security number in the fifties and sixties, and uh-huh. at that time, you got it when you either you got your first job or when you got your driver's license. And a lot of times, uh-huh. the social was your driver's license number. Okay. And uh-huh. uh, so I placed everybody where they lived when they were roughly sixteen. About eighty-five percent of the sample, the CEOs about. 15 or 16 when they got their social. So, okay. so. And also there should be an advantage of being a local when you're managing a company, right? I mean, about the information-based advantage. Like, So what do you think about the impact of that one like compared to the supply side right. for the, like the, yeah, for the, from the perspective of the board or the companies? That's right. So the, the exactly right. So the firm might hire uh, the CEO for a local advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they have 
sort of more better information. Mm-hmm. I, I don't find much evidence okay. in support of that hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but there's in a lot of domains that's true. Okay. People mm-hmm. find local advantage among uh, equity analysts. Uh-huh. They find it among uh, investment managers, mm-hmm. um, all kinds of different domains. We see that in that particular study, I, I found no evidence of, of, of a local advantage in, in, in this paper. Now, in another okay. paper, we do. And that's one where we can identify. It's not just looking at the firm in general, but identifying decisions that the firm makes. And the CEO tends to make better decisions when, in, in basically M&A, mergers and acquisitions, when okay. buying mm-hmm. big firms from their, from their hometown. So, from the firm perspective, do you think all of those choices are out of maximization for profits? Well, so so that paper, so for the M and A paper, certainly not, because what we see is the big hometown purchases, the big the big acquisitions of of firms are very good. They do well, and this is when sort of the public is seeing what they're doing. There's a lot of press. Right, but these CEOs also make a lot of purchases of small little firms from their hometown, and they're terrible. So they have really bad announcement returns. Yeah. A, a good example of this is even Warren Buffett, right? Who the Oracle of Omaha. Everyone, you know, is is a, a very famous investor. He uh, purchased his hometown newspaper uh, with Berkshire Hathaway money, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, and anybody buying a newspaper now. That's, that's like, right. That's right. That's right. And he's a very much against buying, you know, print newspapers. But yet he bought the uh, the Omaha paper. <laughs> so, so basically rescued it. So, with shareholder money. So, even even the best guys seem to be make some bad decisions. Yeah. So, how did you start this research? Uh, working on this research um, area. Like, what was your first basis point? Yeah. Uh, why did I start re- working on this? When I finished, I can give you the long story, the short story, but here's, the, here's, the, here's somewhere in between. When I finished undergrad, I went to get my PhD in economics at, at, at Duke University and spent two years there taking classes, passed all my qualifying exams, just want to make that clear for the podcast. And then I had to write my dissertation when I was pretty, pretty young and didn't know what to write on. So I had an opportunity. I went and I worked uh, in Chapel Hill at an investment firm for about five or six years. Um, left and did that for a number of years. And the whole time I was working um, there, you know, I met some powerful people here and there. And what I kept going through my mind is, well, these guys aren't making decisions the way that we learn in, in uh, <laughs> economics class. They don't seem to be behaving as rational <laughs> agents. Never write out uh, the function and take a derivative. That's right. That's right. Or even, act, you know, and, and we can always say, or act as if. Yes. They were not acting as if. So that was always in the back of my mind. And then when I went back to graduate school in 2006, this was sort of in the back of my mind. And this time I had no problem writing a dissertation because I had worked in this area and, and sort of thought, well, it'd be really interesting. You know, a lot of people at the time were studying sort of behavioral finance from the aspect of sort of small investors, right? Yeah. And aggregation of all those mm-hmm. beliefs. But people who were just starting to look at these managers and sort of the idea, you know, that I had, or you know, I am not the only person, was, look, these people are making big decisions. Mm-hmm. Decisions, uh, they're affecting resource allocation in the economy, affecting millions and millions of lives. 
And yeah. so let's study, put them under the microscope. And they, if anyone should be rational, it should be them, right? And so that was sort of the reason for getting into this. So Yeah, it's coming to a question. I mean, if you're thinking about our audience, like, and all the investors, how do you think they can use the findings of this type of research? Like, or is there a way to avoid this simulfic type of behavioral consistency for yeah. firms? Um, yeah. Or are they just like, yeah, depending on their, how their CEOs are behaving and is it as if? Yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say is, you know, in the in this personal leverage paper, we do find that there's some some evidence, it's weak evidence, that, that sort of these basically tilting the, the, the corporate leverage towards your preference is a bad thing. Okay, there is some weak evidence of that. You know, what does that tell me personally? It tells me how important corporate governance is, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, you know, you have to, you, you, you need to have mechanisms in place to control, control the CEO. And so I, I, I think probably most CEOs will make mistakes. If there's good governance in place, that's uh -huh. less likely to happen. And you can observe those governance mechanisms as an investor. And so, it, I mean, yeah. I think that is probably from an investing mm -hmm. standpoint, uh, that is that is probably the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example for good governance compared with the bad one? Yeah, so there's all kinds of these uh, governance index that people have come up with. This, mm -hmm. There's this Gompers issue and metric governance index. They call it the G index. It's based on sort of mm -hmm. the number of anti-takeover defenses that the firm has. If you have a lot of anti-takeover defenses, this means that you're no longer, that, that basically the market for corporate control is weak, right, uh, on, uh, for you, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's hard to take you over. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of disciplinary mechanism is not there. So basically, that's one way of measuring governance is through this uh, governance. Since then, people have come up with an E-index. So it's some of those things. It's called yeah. the entrenchment index. How entrenched is your your CEO, right? How mm -hmm. how likely are they to get away with what they want to get away with? And so there's all <laughs> kinds of different, you know, and people, there's a whole, whole span of different governance mechanisms out there, product mm -hmm. market competition. If you're a, in a industry that has a lot of competition within the industry, mm -hmm. it's harder to get away with things, right? Because yeah. you, yeah. you lose, you lose market share, mm -hmm. um, and eventually that, should make you lose your job. You know, you can look at board structure. Mm. So there's all kinds of people have looked at governance mechanisms, internal, external. So the market for corporate control would be external. Internal would be, you know, board structure. Mm -hmm. How many independent directors do you have? This uh. kind of thing. All of these things sort of play, mm -hmm. play a role. Uh, How does competition play into this? I, I, I can't help but sit here and think about, as an economist, you know, that what drove all those theories of optimization was there's stiff competition and without it you're gonna you know without making an optimal decision you're going to go under right right, right. so do you see a difference with how much uh, a latitude a CEO has and how much how much of an influence they have between really competitive industries and non-competitive industries yeah so we didn't in our papers we had didn't use product market competition mm -hmm. in as sort of one of the tests in these classic sort of uh, sort of how much do these CEO characteristics matter mm -hmm. papers is, well, you should only see the effect, the effect should be strongest in weakly governed firms, right? Yeah. Now there's a million ways to measure governance as we were sort of mm -hmm. talking about. Yeah. And that's what you tend to find is, look, in the weakly governed firms, we see these sort of traits are exacerbated in the, in the decisions of the firm. Mm -hmm. In strongly governed firms, we don't see it because they don't allow it. Product market competition, 
also has this effect. It has this <laughs> sort of disciplinary effect mm-hmm. on, on these types of things. I haven't used it in my paper. I probably should have at some point. Uh, Next uh, Referees <laughs> haven't asked me to do it, but, but it, it does. In a number of papers, they do use this. this and and it, is, it is very effective, yeah. It's, some people argue that it's one of the more important measures of governments. And that would be a measure of external governments. It's the external market really governing you, right? So it's nothing mm-hmm. that the that the firm is doing. It's it's that uh, you just can't get away with it. There's stiff competition. So, so in, yeah. So in a sense, the, the internal governance and, and external market forces are, are substitutes yeah. for each other. In, in, That's right. In some hmm. way. I guess, yeah, we talked about this behavioral consistency between the CEOs and the yeah. corporate policies today, and also the irrationalities in CEO market as well. And thank you for joining us today, and thank you for all the information that you have given us. And I think these are really valuable for investors and our audience as well. And thank you again for listening to us. You can send us a mail by using madadicon at gmail.com, or you can also follow us on Twitter, which is madadicon as well. Thank you. Bye.